I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming up in the next hour, it's a woman who knocked out the servers at the Weather Channel when America Googled her all at once. It's a novelist who's written six books in six months. And it's a soul singer to whom Marvin Gaye once said, Gosh, I love big legs and you ain't got none. Storm Large. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole, who will sit in our audience during the show and write a poem about all of the lessons he's gleaned from the show during the night. And of course, we've got music from our house band led this week by Mr. Jim Brunberg. Thanks, Jim. So before we get started on the show tonight, we would like to welcome another station. It's KWMR Community Radio for West Marin, broadcasting at 90.5 Point Reyes and 89.9 Bolinas in Northern California. Welcome, KWMR. Since this is a special uh, show from Wordstock, the festival of the book, we should really point out some of the great literary figures from Marin County. There is Isabel Allende, Dave Eggers, Anne Lamott, and of course, the author of the seminal work, I Can't Drive 55, Mr. Sammy Hagar. Welcome, KWMR. So as I said, we're coming to you from Wordstock, which is Portland's annual festival of the book, where writers from around the country come to read from their latest books, participate in panels, and to drink to excess with other writers. Uh, coming up later, we'll have soul singer Betty Levette, who's just written her memoir, A Woman Like Me. We'll also have writer Aaron Morgenstern on the show. And I think Aaron is a particularly inspiring writer to have on a Wordstock show, since her incredibly successful debut novel, The Night Circus, was first imagined during NaNoWriMo, or National Novel Writing Month. If you're not familiar with this, every November... Utterly insane writers around the country decide that they're going to write 50,000 words in a month. And that's right around the minimum for a novel. Um, and they just, they're going to do that in 30 days. And the first year Erin tried it was in 2003, and she only got to about 15,000 words. And then she participated the next six years and hit or surpassed that goal every single time. And the world of the Night Circus was actually born in 2005 when she was working on another story. She said that she got bored and, quote, decided to send the characters to the circus. And she spent years creating these beautiful, elaborate worlds with ice gardens and cloud mazes and the air always heavy with scents of vanilla, chocolate, and cinnamon. And there was something about the way that she said it, I just decided to send the characters to the circus, that made me imagine that creating worlds like this might be a little like lucid dreaming. 
And it made me kind of jealous that she got to spend all that time exploring those worlds. And if fiction writing is similar to fiction reading in any way, she sort of did get to visit there. Uh, In a March New York Times article called Your Brain on Fiction, Annie Murphy-Paul tells us that neuroscientists have discovered that reading about something can be exactly the same to parts of the brain as actually experiencing it. That if you come across a word like peppermint or rose in a book, it's not just your language processors that perk up, but the parts of your brain that become involved when you actually smell those things. But even more interesting, Paul talks about a Canadian study by two cognitive psychologists that reported that people who read a lot of fiction are, quote, better able to understand other people, empathize with them, and see the world from their perspective. And I love this idea because it gives me hope for myself and my not-the-most-adept-at-human-interaction problem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What this study says to me is that if I read enough... It'll be like relationship practice, but without all the messiness that comes with actual human interaction. It's fantastic. And it's a time saver. Um, Peter Todd, he was a professor of informatics at Indiana University. He says we should have 12 romantic relationships to establish a baseline before we settle down. 12 romantic relationships. And if you are a person, this is hypothetical, for whom resiliency is not a strong suit, you're not going to be able to survive the awkward and heartbreaking ends of 12 relationships. But 12 novels about relationships, that's just a pleasure. And the bonus is they're conversation starters with potential mates like, hey, I just finished Ian McEwan's On Chesil Beach. Do you want to have coffee and never, ever get married, ever? <laughs> so, uh, but even if, even if all of that isn't true and reading these books won't make us better people or less socially clueless, I still love that there's some part of my brain, some neurons that fired up while I was reading on my couch that firmly believe that I went to the night circus and I saw a fire-eating paper dragon and I visited a tent full of memories in jars. Because the rest of my brain was enjoying sweats and sandwich night, which is slightly, just slightly less cool. Our musical guest tonight is a woman whose career has led her from the San Francisco punk scene to Carnegie Hall. After a long rock career, she took to the stage with a one-woman show about life with her mentally ill mother called Crazy Enough. And after months of selling that show out, multiple extensions, she then turned the show into a memoir of the same name, and that became an Oprah Book of the Week. Since then, she's appeared in Randy Newman's musical Harps and Angels with Michael McKean. She's toured the world with Pink Martini, and she has sung with symphony orchestras. Now she's back with her band and writing new songs on a slightly smaller scale than the symphony for a new album due next spring, and she will also sing with the Portland Symphony at Carnegie Hall in the spring. Please welcome Storm Large to Livewire.
Storm Large, Scott Weddle, James Beaton, and Matt Brown, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. More information can be found at stormlarge.com. Tonight we're celebrating writers, but often when we're busy celebrating the books we love, we forget to celebrate the editors who helped make them great. To remedy that, Livewire presents first drafts of the first lines of great novels. A Tale of Two Cities. You know, things were good and bad. I'd explain further, but you kind of had to be there. Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. Well, actually, no, wait. My family calls me Ishmael, but I've always hated it. So when I left home, I told people to call me Jim. So call me Jim or Jimmy or Jimmy Jams. I like that one. What was I saying? Lolita. So, Lolita's cute. Kind of thinking about asking her out. Is there an age when that's just, like, too weird? I mean, is, like, half plus seven still a thing? Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. (laughs) Actually, I'm screwing with you. There's no such thing as a happy family. The old man in the sea. He was too old to be fishing, but you could never tell Gary anything. This has been Livewire's tribute to editors. That was Trisha Ferguson, Paul Glazier, and Jim Brunberg. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that loves books as much as you do, unless you hate them, in which case we love them more. Coming up, Night Circus author Aaron Morgenstern, soul singer and author Betty Levette, more from Storm Large and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. is good at deadlines. As I mentioned earlier in the show, she participated in NaNoWriMo seven times, hitting the goal of writing 50,000 words in a month six times. It was during NaNoWriMo 2005 that her phantasmagorical novel, The Night Circus, was born. It only took four years of writing and then two more years of revisions, and her debut novel was ready to charm the pants off of the literary world, and then it did. Her story of two love-struck magicians Trapped in a fierce decades-long duel, debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list, and the book has been translated into over 30 languages. The book has just been released in paperback. Please welcome New York Times best-selling author Aaron Morgenstern to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Erin. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to have you. I wanted you to talk um, quickly about a quote that I read. You, you said, I wrote a lot in the past, but nothing ever consented to being novel-shaped. Can you talk about what that, me- what that meant? Um, I don't write in order. 
Um, so I write little bits and pieces. So I, and I had all these little um, interconnected vignettes, and um, yeah, it was not novel shaped. A novel has a beginning and an end, and normally that plot thing in the sure, middle. Sure, so, sure. Um, I think um, it, my brain turns into a very strange place with a lot of stuff in it, mm-hmm. and there um, and it doesn't have a set timeline. Like when I'm thinking of a specific scene, I'm not really thinking of where it falls in the book. It's just, I, I know at some point I need this bit, at some point I need that bit. So I'm not thinking in terms of past, present, future. Um, I have a very sort of a non-linear brain. Like it's probably something like a Christopher Nolan movie where it's like, it's all memento-ish in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so now I write bits and pieces and sometimes I don't know how early or late they're going to occur. There are scenes in the Night Circus that I wrote uh, truly not knowing where they would occur in the time. Like mostly conversation things or... or um, just little bits and, and pieces, and I moved the beginning of the book several times. I, I kept moving it further back in time. Originally, mm-hmm. we like started right with the creation of the circus with Chandrash, and then once the plot started to develop, I realized I needed to go further back than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that whole writing out of order thing was. Yeah, I have a program called Scrivener, which helps keep me organized. And if I was doing all this in a Word document, that would not have happened. Yeah. And yeah. So I needed to kind of be able to isolate and look through little bits and pieces. Well, the world that you've created in the book is extraordinary, and I thought better than talk about it that it might be great if you could just read it, read a bit of it to give people an idea. Cool. I would love to. Yeah. Well, the, the whole um, dueling magicians plot gets the most like, kind of attention when you're doing the like quick sum up of what the book's about, but there's a kind of equally important storyline about a boy named Bailey who is kind of the Alice to the Wonderland and the chocolate to, Charlie to the Chocolate Factory, the Arthur Dent to the universe. Um, <laughs> and I knew I wanted him to be American because I um, always got mad that only British kids got to go to Narnia. It's true. Those so. bastards. I know. No, like, all those characters are British. It's not fair. <laughs> so I was like the little American kid reading these things, and now, like, now I have my revenge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they just get left home alone yeah. while their parents go to Thanksgiving in New York. <laughs> um, so this um, is a little bit of um, Bailey exploring a tent in the circus, and um, it's a um, we're gonna kind of jump right in the middle, but it's a, a, a tent full of um, bottles and jars. The, um, the sign just says uh, bedtime stories, even tied rhapsodies anthologies of memory. Please enter cautiously and feel free to open what is closed. Bailey wonders what could possibly be inside all of these jars. Most of the clear glass ones look empty. As he reaches the opposite side of the table, he picks one at random, a small round ceramic jar glazed in black with a high shine and a lid topped with a round curl of a handle. He pulls the lid off and looks inside. A small wisp of smoke escapes, but other than that, it is empty. As he peers inside, he smells the smoke of a roaring fire and a hint of snow and roasting chestnuts. Curious, he inhales deeply. There's the aroma of mulled wine and sugared candy, peppermint and pipe smoke, the crisp pine scent of a fir tree, the wax of dripping candles. He can almost feel the snow, the excitement and the anticipation, the sugary taste of a striped candy. It is dizzying and wonderful and disturbing. After a few moments, he replaces the lid and puts the jar carefully back on the table. He looks around at the jars and bottles, intrigued but hesitant to open another. He picks up a frosted glass mason jar and unscrews the silver metal lid. This jar is not empty, but contains a small amount of white sand with shifts on the bottom. The scent that wafts from it is the unmistakable smell of the ocean, a bright summer day at the seashore. He can hear the sound of waves crashing against the sand, the cry of a seagull. There is something mysterious as well, something fantastical, the flag of a pirate ship on the far horizon, a mermaid's tail flipping out of sight behind a wave. The scent and the feeling are adventurous and exhilarating with the salty tinge of a sea breeze. Bailey closes the jar and the scent and the feeling fade, trapped back inside the glass with its handful of sand. Next, he chooses a bottle from a shelf on the wall, wondering if there is any distinction between jars and bottles on the table and the ones that surround it, if there is an indiscernible filing system for these curious containers. This bottle is tall and thin, with a cork held in place by silver wire. He removes it with some difficulty, and it opens with a popping noise. 
There is something in the bottom of the bottle, but he cannot tell what it is. The scent wafting from the thin neck is bright and floral, a rose bush full of dew-dripping blossoms, the mossy smell of garden dirt. He feels as though he is walking down a garden path. There's the buzzing of bees and the melody of songbirds in the trees. He inhales more deeply, and there are other flowers along with the roses, lilies and irises and crocuses. The leaves of the trees are rustling in the soft, warm wind. The sound of someone else's footsteps falls not far from his own. The sensation of a cat brushing past his legs is so genuine that he looks down expecting to see it, but there is nothing on the floor of the tent but more jars and bottles. Bailey puts the cork back in the bottle and returns it to its shelf. Then he chooses another. Tucked in the back of one of the shelves is a small bottle, rounded with a short neck and closed with a matching glass stopper. He picks it up carefully and is heavier than he expected. Removing the stopper, he is confused, for at first the scent and the sensation do not change. Then comes the aroma of caramel wafting on the crisp breeze of an autumn wind. The scent of wool and sweat makes him feel as though he is wearing a heavy coat with the warmth of a scarf around his neck. There is the impression of people wearing masks. The smell of a bonfire mixes with the caramel. And then there is a shift, a movement in front of him, something gray a sharp pain in his chest, the sensation of falling, a sound like howling wind or a screaming girl. I don't know what that was. Erin Morgenstern. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we're talking to author Erin Morgenstern, author of The Night Circus. I wonder when people write sort of fantasy things like this, are you creating worlds that you want to go to? Yes. This is, the circus is basically my ideal entertainment venue. Because mm-hmm. um, I love a, a, a space where you can be completely immersed in the entertainment. But um, no, and I love that, um, um, that feeling of being completely encompassed in, in a world. And I also, um, I don't really like, like audience participation theater. Mm-hmm. But I like like being self-directed and able to explore and be able to do what you want. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure kind yeah. of entertainment. I wanted to ask, I know writers get a lot of process questions, but I loved it that you had a playlist for this, for, for this book online. Um, and uh, you said that White Winter Hymnal by Fleet Foxes was your revision music of choice. And we actually have that track. Johnny, can you play a little bit of that track? So that was the Fleet Foxes. What made that song so great for making revisions? Well, I had that whole album kind of on constant repeat because it's a great tone. I like, um, I like, I always write to music. I, I can't write in silence, but I need something that has a little bit of a rhythm to it. Um, and that album in particular was, and Fleet Foxes just had such a great sound anyway. Um, and that one kind of became um, the, the specific song that I, I loved in particular because I didn't really notice that until after a while, the, the, the Scarves of Red lyric, which mm-hmm. is so appropriate because the, the, it's right. kind of the sign of the Night Circus fandom that the, the hardcore circus fans wear red scarves. So it, it, like, that one was my one that I focused on. Can you sometimes look at a piece of writing and know what you were listening to when you were writing it? Yes, I can. Just based on the rhythm of it? And- mm-hmm. Or I just have um, certain songs that I associate with time periods. The, the other big circus song was the um, Iron and Wines, the Trapeze Swinger. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, it's a 10-minute long song, but I would seriously just put one, that one track on repeat while yeah. I was writing. So uh, just one last question. The, the, the book is, um, you know, it, it follows these two sort of star-crossed uh, um, young magicians um, and who are, who are doing real magic. Do you believe that, that magic actually exists? I think when posed the question, like, do I believe in magic, I have to say yes, because I think a belief in magic is inherently a belief that extraordinary things are possible. And I can't sit here in this fabulous red chair and say <laughs> that extraordinary things are not possible because they certainly are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful book. Uh, the book is The Night Circus. The author is Erin Morgenstern. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank you for having me.
listening to Livewire Radio. If you're in the Portland area on November 3rd, come to our live show at the Alberta Rose Theatre with Bruce Springsteen biographer Peter Ames Carlin, Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things author Cheryl Strayed, political commentary from Jack Oman, and music from Jens Lechman. Find more information at livewireradio.org. Greetings and welcome to the Hunger Games Brazilian Barbecue and Ice Creamery, an exciting new family-style restaurant from the creators of Medieval Time. We've taken the best-selling books and combined them with churrasco, the centuries-old Brazilian cooking method for an unforgettable dining experience. As you enter our main gate, write the names of your children on slips of paper and then drop them in the reaping box. If your child is chosen first, you'll win a complimentary four-course chicken dinner with your choice of sides. If your child is chosen last, you will have the honor of watching them battle to the death in our state-of-the-art killing floor. In the gaming arena, our courteous and roaming gauchos visit your table and carve off a tantalizing assortment of South American barbecue. Try the District 10 bacon-wrapped sirloin filet. The District 4 Chili Lime Tuna Steak Or fresh Linguitha Sausage from our in-house charcuterie Show your favor for one of the starvelings by throwing them a scrap from your plate You'll never miss it with our portions When the Jabberjay sings, the games begin! Watch as 24 desperate youths, or tributes, go at each other like their lives depend on it Because they do! Machetes, medium-sized rocks, small knives, or just bare knuckles. The variety of combat is endless, just like our District 11 cheesy breadsticks. When a tribute is killed, we honor them with free refills of select Pepsi products for the whole arena. In the end, only one tribute will stand alive. But don't go far. We're also an ice creamery with 74 scrumptious flavors like Katniss Crunch, Pita, Pineapple, and President Snowberry. The Hunger Games Brazilian Barbecue and Ice Creamery. When you're here, your hunger is no game. We're perfect for birthdays and family reunions, though admittedly less perfect for sweet 16s and bar mitzvahs. Like us on Facebook, and and may may the odds be ever in your flavor. That was Trisha Ferguson and Paul Glazier. Soul singer Betty LeVette recorded her first hit single, My Man, He's a Lovin' Man, when she was 16 years old in 1962. After that, even though she ran in the same professional circles as Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, and James Brown, she had a hard time finding her footing again, and she struggled for a while. But her luck changed when she was asked to sing The Who's Love Reign Over Me at the 2008 Kennedy Center Honors and brought Pete Townsend to tears. What followed were two Grammy-nominated CDs and an invitation to sing at President Obama. Obama's inauguration with a little-known soul singer named Mr. John Bon Jovi. (laughs) Now you can read her extraordinary story in her memoir, A Woman Like Me. Please welcome Betty LeVette to Livewire. I wanted to talk about, at the beginning of your book, it's, it's pretty much immediate. You get this sort of windfall. When you're 16 years old, you get signed by Atlantic Records, you record a hit song, and suddenly you're thrust out performing with people that you've been looking up to your whole life, and you're mm-hmm. 16 years old. What was it like standing at the side of the stage looking at your heroes at that age? I was the groupie who could sing. <laughs> Really, I mean, that's all you could be at 16 or 17 years old. I think that just because they come and put you on the stage with them, the fact that you were in front of the stage the week before doesn't change. I mean, I still thought they would... I want to go to bed with all of you! (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of that, let's get to that. Um, (laughs) 
Well, you you mentioned romancing, romances with Otis Redding and Benny King very early on when, when you were still a teenager, but you were very bl- sort of blasé about it when you were a teenager, and I just I thought that was so interesting because uh, it, it, most sixteen-year-olds would have been you know amazingly but you excited. Know the sixteen-year-olds from now. Yeah, that's true. So it, it's very. I, that one of the things that I'm so pleased about having the opportunity to speak to people while the book is out and hopefully have more uh, television, television appearances because the people that I'm talking about, you don't even know, you know. So to draw conclusions in this case based upon what I said is, is just not true. It's not, blacks for one were not, who you thought we were in 1962. You're talking about people who who had only been able to speak loudly. The first time I went to dinner with Otis Redding after he had his first record had started to sell, and he had all of these uh, credit cards, mm-hmm. and he's from Macon, Georgia. He was more segregated even than I was in Detroit, Michigan, and we were afraid to use the credit cards because they I don't know what we thought would happen. But Maybe yeah, they, they, would, they would think that yeah. he'd stolen it or something. Yeah, and he did not, uh, he, he was apprehensive about using the credit card, so we called his manager. He came to the restaurant and got us. So at, at the time, did it just sort of feel like you were in a whole new world, that, that, that everyone was kind of in this whole new world? I, I don't think we thought of it as a, as a world of any kind. Detroit was very different in 1962. To record in Detroit in 1962 was not difficult to do. You could get a job at any one of the factories and you could record in 1962. (laughs) And then not after? About 1964, you couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't, uh, it, it, it was bizarre for me because no one in my family had ever recorded, but no one else in Detroit thought of it as bizarre because Every damn body else was recording. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you also, you, you made a statement about Detroit at that time um, that uh, men in Detroit at that time were just making money off of women, whether it was through prostitution or women singing, that it was rough for women to make money, and you know, that you didn't see a lot of the money from, from your gigs. Well, we have to constantly remember that half of my book is seen through David Ritz's eyes. Uh, uh, California raised bisexual guy who thinks that everything goes like this and no it it, it, it it was just it's hard to explain how everything was but you must keep in mind that segregation was uh, integration was only a few years old yeah. and just before that black men were still getting trying to get over the here, go here and make seven babies, and then we will leave, take you over here and make nine more. And, you know, I, I, it's so hard for me to understand how you don't understand that if you teach somebody to eat with their left hand for like 200 years and then say, you must eat with your right hand now, that's, you know, it, 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 just the fact that there was integration didn't mean that we were any different sure. right then. I mean, we weren't just sitting around waiting to be correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of pretty amazing stories in your book. Um, one of them um, that, I, that I was hoping that you might be able to tell is you, you talked about watching the birth of psychedelic funk. Um, you talked about actually witnessing George Clinton over the course of... Oh, yeah. We had worked um, just before... Uh, the parliament and funk well they were par- the parliaments and just before they became uh, funkadelic or whatever we had worked in one place and they were the parliaments they all had on three piece suits they did steps they pointed at the same time everybody stood in order sure we were there at one place for 10 days you were usually in a club in Detroit 10 days then the next 10 days Everything was happening so fast in Detroit. The next 10 days, acid had happened. So they, uh, George Clinton, they gave me this acid that I still am not over. Every once in a while, I'll see a big burst. <laughs> really, I'm just sitting there looking, you'll say, Chow. But the first time when I took it, 
all my guts spilled out on the floor and they had numbers on it. Wow. <laughs> That's good. But, well yes. done, your brain. But, uh, but they went on, we went on to another gig there in Detroit, which was at a bigger club than the one we were at. When we opened, they were the parliaments. When we took the acid, they came out the next night half naked and in diapers and they were the Funkadelics. <laughs> I swear to you, this was not a great decision. George was first, and then yeah. the rest of them followed. Yeah. And in that 10 days, they became uh, Funkadelic. Yeah, yeah. Extremely. <laughs> well, I think in, in reading the book, you, you talk about your buzzard luck. And it, it was amazing reading how many opportunities you were given by people who then just sort of abandoned mm -hmm. you. And it was so obvious that... Uh, it, it struck me um, how sort of random it is. You had a manager who I felt that felt like a moment for me. You had a manager who um, was going to go and sort of work on your Atlantic deal. And what happened with him? The biggest black star at the time, Mary Wells, her husband shot him. <laughs> As he went to New York so to, to talk about he your went deal. To New York, actually went to New York to talk about Mary Wells leaving Motown. Mm -hmm. and going to a bigger company. Because people don't realize that as well. At that time, Motown wasn't, it was just a small local company. So her husband was trying to get her into a bigger company. And I was with Atlantic, so it was like, that was, you talk about amazing. Yeah. That was amazing that I wasn't with Motown. I was with a national company that was the biggest black record company in the world. And they went to New York to negotiate her leaving Motown. And uh, he, her husband, Herman Griffin, and my manager, Robert West, got into an argument. And Robert West was, Herman was about my size and height. And, You're a smaller uh, person. Yeah, and Robert yeah. West was much taller. And he would pull this gun. Anytime he got drunk, he would pull this gun. And he pulled the gun. And when he pulled the gun, looking at someone shorter, Herman grabbed his hand and pushed it back. And the bullet went straight through West Eye. So I became the only young artist whose manager had been shot by the number one artist. <laughs> it started out weird. It did start out weird. But uh, so, yeah, actually, once you got to the mid-70s, you had recorded 60 songs in 13 years and not Some a record at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it just it struck me, your perseverance. Why didn't you quit? Because I do this better than, than anything else. And I think someone was telling me as we were signing uh, the books earlier at the book signing, mm -hmm. and a lady came up and she said, my mother is older than you, and she's a very good singer, and she wants to give this trial up you know, can you tell me, can you write something in the book? And I said, is anybody else telling her she can sing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the reason I didn't quit is because people kept telling me I could sing and they kept paying my damn bills. Yeah. But if nobody's telling you can sing it, you just got it in your heart to sing, go to back to work. <laughs> Um, well, things actually, things actually really turned around for you, kind of, I think, starting in the early 2000s. Um, but this, this moment, I think, the, the big moment that I think uh, seemed like a big turnaround for you was the 2008 Kennedy Center Honors, where you were asked to sing a Who song, um, and uh, Roger Daltrey was there, Pete Townsend was there, Barbara Streisand was there, and you brought Pete Townsend to tears. Um, well, which, pretty amazing. Did you know that night? Did you feel that that was a turning point for you? No, I, I certainly didn't. I didn't like the song. I'd never heard the song before. But, it was Love Rain Over but Me. But it was. A, it was just a song. Yeah. You know, whereas, as I tell my audience now from the stage, these may have been the songs of your youth, but they were the nemesis of mine. They weren't played on black radio. I didn't know any of them. And my husband, who is Irish, was like, love right or me. At first, we have to remove the word or. Mm -hmm. So I immediately changed it to love rain over me. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to have um, 
Rob Mathis, who's just a brilliant arranger, do just what we did on the Interpretations album. Everybody just suspends your thoughts. I'm the only black person there who doesn't know these tunes. Suspend your teenage thoughts and play what I am singing. Mm -hmm. And so they made me this whole arrangement, which I fell in love with. So that made it easier to sing the song. I had uh, Roger and Pete were sitting right there. Aretha was sitting right here. And Beyonce was sitting right here. So I call this my Three Stooges slap. Just... Aretha, you, and, and you knew her husband quite well in the late 60s. Yeah, um, I'm, well, in the early 60s, not the late 60s, the early 60s. And what people have to realize when they read the book, I did not have an affair with Aretha Franklin's husband. Aretha Franklin's person was a pimp, and he had lots of women, and not only her or me. He, there was no affair. She knew everything he was doing. I mean, we didn't go and sleep in front of her or whatever, but yeah. he had lots of women. He had one who made much more money at the time than Aretha did. Mm-hmm. And uh, because she was reluctant to leave Ted, her father, who was a well-known Baptist minister, stopped supporting her career. And then it broke open because of Ted, because he taught Ted her how White. to walk, breathe, talk, sing. Well, I mean, she had the voice, but that was it. And it was about it with me, mm-hmm. as it was with Tina. I mean, people came and taught us how to walk and talk and sit up straight and deliver a tune or whatever. Yeah. So it's not like you may have imagined it. Somebody in some uh, magazine recently had said she had an affair with Aretha Franklin's husband. And the woman who was paying all of the early bills was a really high-paid prostitute wow. who made lots of money, afforded Ted the luxury of supplying Aretha's uh, career, and it, it, it just wasn't being looked at through the same eyes that you're looking at it now. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, <gasps> to us, it, it really was not. So you, you after this, this 2008 concert, you've, you've, you've had two Grammy-nominated CDs. You've just uh, created another uh, CD that actually came out at the same time as this book. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel now, are you happy with, your, with where your career is oh now? Oh, my goodness. I am, I'm absolutely thrilled. I've got these two Grammy nominations. I've actually been able to pull a black and white audience together in Portland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, um, the book is amazing. Um, the, the, your, your life story is inspiring. The book is Betty Levatt, A Woman Like Me, and I believe that you are going to uh, okay, sing a song for us. Oh. Yeah, baby, thank you. This young woman is from Nashville, and she wrote one of the songs on uh, the new um, CD, which is called Thankful and Thoughtful. I'm in an open book. I ain't got no secrets. My story bleeds poetic lines. For all my deep introspection, it's still my heart that they can't find. They just go home. They just keep on talking. They never doubt the things they do. As for me, I'm still a mystery, eluded by the simple truth. In my vain humiliation, I've wandered through shame's dark halls. I donned a new name, assumed me a new nature, fooling nobody, just creating walls. Here I am, you can take me or leave me, but if you don't mind as you go, 
Give a little nod for mere compassion For the sake of both our souls The more I search, the more I die I want to live, I want to be alive Am I saved? Or am I broken? Am I healed? Or do you think I'm just justified? The more I search, the more I die. Betty LeVette, the book is A Woman Like Me. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, baby. That was Betty Levette. Her book is A Woman Like Me. Her new CD is Thankful and Thoughtful. You can find more information at bettylevette.com. That's B-E-T-T-Y-E, Levette. Tonight's Live Wire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, featuring 25 different varieties of apples this month. Apples are rich in antioxidants, but are normally high up in trees, and you can't get them without a ladder or a long stick. Whole Foods solves that problem by working with regional harvesters to provide you with fresh local produce, all at a reasonable distance from the ground. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be right back. presents I Saw You, Missed Connections, Literary Edition. Netherfield Ball, Saturday night. Me, intelligent, playful, the second of five sisters, tend to put my nose where it doesn't belong. You, tall, judgmental, and brooding. You ignored me, insulted me repeatedly, and questioned my family's motives. I can't get enough of you. I'd love to have an endless string of misunderstandings and contentious conversations, then finally admit we're in love. Let's have tea, you bastard. Contact ebennett46 at meryton200yearsago.co.uk. Amity, Long Island. Me, troubled police chief with something to prove. You, 20 feet long, grayish skin, nice teeth. You killed four townspeople, chewed off half a boat, and ate a friend of mine. You got Moxie. Coffee? Surfer? Let's do a sequel. Brody at AmityPlace.gov. Us, 12 Jewish dudes with good hearts and even better hair looking to go on walkabout. You, brooding carpenter with a sensible sandals and a gift for gab. We dig how you turn lepers into not lepers. We have plenty of water, no wine. Loaves? Fishes? Let's make this a baker's dozen. Hit us up at Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the other James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas at lookingtodisciple.org. That was Trisha Ferguson and Paul Glazier. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Storm Large. Stand up for 
for your great grandmother, for your father, brother, and each other and everyone. Be beginning of the show, house poet Scott Poole has been sitting patiently in our audience, watching everything that's going on tonight, and he has been writing furiously a poem that's just going to let you know what he's gleaned, everything that he's learned tonight. So please welcome back to the stage, Mr. Scott Poole. What I learned tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I kind of wish Marvin Gaye had once said to me, if only you had big legs. <laughs> because I have Lord of Rings troll-like tree trunk stump quads so big they can spread bars on a dirty jail cell. And I would be pretty prepared if such a situation were to fortunately arise. <laughs> but sadly, these kind of opportunities keep eluding me. Elusive as smelling cinnamon snow in Narnia with the British. <laughs> if I wasn't always lucid dreaming, I might be paying more attention to these opportunities, like reading Jane Austen on an ox with a bespeckled storm large. That means she likes to wear glasses. In Portland, you can actually miss this kind of thing if you're daydreaming too much. Maybe this is why I drank too much, so I can concentrate better. You can't help yourself in Portland when paragraphs are tattooed to the inset of rainy rose-scented biceps on beautiful bicyclists sliding slippery by. Hey, that sounds a bit like a first line of a novel from a budding genius. That was probably dismissed by their editor outright thus causing the writer to die in obscurity, not even with enough talent to die from an interesting gun skirmish, but instead die accidentally by cooking toast while grooving to Betty Levette on acid, which inspires them to elegantly dig with a metal fork a two small slice of English muffin and out of the single slice slot. <laughs> but then again, you never know if 
electrocution or elocution is in your immediate future unless you spit your numbered guts in public. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. And that is our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our guests tonight, Aaron Morgenstern, Betty Levette, Storm Large, James Beaton, and Scott Weddle. Our house band is Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Evans. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Paul Glazier and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Ben Coleman, and Dylan McConus. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Paul O'Brien. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Lighting by Rhiannon Betts. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Special thanks tonight go to Katie Merritt, Nancy Ellis, and all of our friends at the Wordstock Festival. Find them at thewordstock.org. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.